Welcome to the Player Engage podcast, where we dive into the biggest challenges, technologies, trends, and best practices for creating unforgettable player experiences. Player Engage is brought to you as a collaboration between Keyword Studios and HelpShift. Here is your host, Greg Posner. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Player Engage podcast. Greg here. Today, we are joined by Tim Benison, the COO of Hothead Games. Tim is a visionary leader who had a profound impact on gaming and technology. He's been in the, in the industry for over 25 years, and he has background in creative product development, innovation, team leadership, and more. He's been in companies such as, and right now, Hothead Games, 8 Studio, Radical Entertainment, Capcom, and more. Many names that you're very familiar with. So, Tim, I'm excited about our conversation today. You want to do a quick introduction of yourself or Hothead Games? Sure. Uh, glad to be here. Um, really appreciate that nice introduction. I'm not sure I can live up to it, though. Um, I'm just a regular guy, regular Joe in uh, in gaming. Uh, been around for, geez, 30 years making video games. It's crazy. 30 years next year, I guess. Uh, yeah, I'm currently CEO of Hothead. We, the company Hothead's been around for about 16, 17 years, um, mostly building mobile games most, most of that time. I joined about three years ago um, as COO because uh, my former buddy, Ian Wilkinson, who is the CEO of Hothead Games, I uh, used to work with him for many years back in the day, starting in 95 at Radical Entertainment in, here in Vancouver. So I spent maybe 15 years at that company. And in between Radical and uh, here, I worked at Capcom, as you said, uh, as the head of studio there, Capcom Game Studio Vancouver. And I also helped found a visual effects company called Generate. That's the eight studios that you're talking about. We were doing um, 3D stereoscopic conversion for feature films, like a lot of the Marvel films and Disney films and Fox films and things like that. So Very yeah. cool. Yeah. How does that, I mean, this is a high level question, right? Like you, you got your background, I'm guessing in digital media, is that where it all started? Like you kind of learned these VFX and stuff like that and everything came together, right? And yeah, yeah. Like, I mean, probably I, I, a computer science background. I got my bachelor's in 86, believe it or not, in computer science at U University of Toronto. But my goal of why I did that is I always wanted to make pictures with computers. Uh, when I saw Star Wars Episode Four, which was not called Episode Four back then in 1977, I saw it like 17 times in the theaters because that's the only way you could see it back then. Um, I said, I'm going to do this. And I thought I was going to go into motion control and model building and stuff like that, which is how that movie was done. But by the time I got, you know, graduated, it was, it was starting to be computers were, were, were the way to do it. So the whole thing, the whole degree, and I did a master's in computer graphics was all around how do I get to make pictures with computers. Back then, there was no concept of real-time 3D. I mean, of course, there was Atari and, and Super Nintendo and stuff, but I wasn't really interested in, you know, sprites and 2D. Um, but just about the time I hit Radical, 95, 94, 95, was when the PSX came out and the Sega Saturn, and you could get cards for your PC to do pseudo 3D, and Doom was out, and Quake came out a bit later, you know. So 3D was the thing, right? And so uh, that that became a big a big part of my initial career, like the technical aspects of doing 3D in real time on you know consumer devices that you you and I could buy for 300 bucks, right? So that was the, I guess that's how I got my start. Yeah, all that stuff. I remember when I was young, my dad took me to CompUSA for those people that still remember CompUSA, and 
I remember I was playing NHL like 94 on the PC and I saw the Voodoo 3DFX graphics card at the store. And I was too young to even know what it was, but it talked about great graphics. I was just like, oh man, I got to get this from my computer and put it in to see what NHL 94, whatever it was at 94, 94 was Sega Genesis. But I forgot what year it was. And I just remember putting it in and like waiting for such a crazy difference. And all that was make the game run a little quicker and look a little nicer and like... That was like the beginning of 3D, and I just imagined living through those periods, right? And I was part of it, but I was younger than, if not at the creative stage at that time, just like magical, right? I mean, Star Wars kind of probably opened the eyes for how many people out there and what's possible, and George Lucas did it the old-fashioned way, and then all of a sudden inspired a whole bunch of new people. Yeah, well, I mean, I was even involved earlier in that, like, well, not earlier than Star Wars, but my first foray was at a company called Alias Research, which eventually ended up making Maya, which is still the main 3D, you know, animation package that, that movies and, and games use. And we, we were mostly selling software to people like Ford or Honda Motor Company for industrial design. But we had a couple of people working on this animation system. And this guy, you know, named James Cameron came in and said, I got this movie about these people underwater called The Abyss. And you know, um, he needed to do this really weird pseudopod water sequence where this drop of water became animated and took on the faces of the actors. You can't do that with motion control and models, right? So we took our animation software and morphed it so that he could, he could do that sequence. And then he came back a year later and said, well, now I want to do this liquid metal robot, you know, that's a sequel to my Terminator movie. So we did couple of lots, well, several people worked with ILM on that. Um, some, one of our guys went to ILM actually, um, and ended up working in Hollywood, but we did the liquid metal robot, you know, the T1000, I guess it was, um, in that. And then the next thing that was done was Jurassic Park, right? With CG dinosaurs. And then we were off to the races and all that was done with, with, with alias software that I worked on. So I think Jurassic Park was like 93 or something or 94, but that's when I, I came to Vancouver and I, I got into the video game business. And, and so there was this confluence of, you know, a few years earlier, we were doing cool stuff in movies, but now it was possible in real time on consumer devices, a lot rougher looking, obviously, than the movies. But I sort of hit, hit at the right time. I hit the game industry at the right time. Was, was the goal to be in gaming or was it, just, I mean, I know Radical, according to LinkedIn, right? Radical came before Generate, but was the goal to be in video games or was the game just to be in, or was it to be in movies and create? special effects there make pictures with computers i didn't care what it was and, and you'll see that theme i mean i've even been involved in visual industrial data analytics and visualizing data i i find that really fascinating which is just a bunch of graphs really you know ultimately on your computer um but it's still a picture in my mind so no i mean i think the circumstance was i was in vancouver in 94 i believe and i started a phd at the computer science department at ubc here in computer graphics but I didn't last very long. I lasted one term because I'd been out of academia for too long and I just didn't like the student life. I was too, I liked the cushy life of having a job. So I ended up, I'm in Vancouver and I know 3D graphics. What, what do I do? And back then there wasn't this massive visual effects industry yet in Vancouver, digital visual, visual effects, but there were two companies making video games which, which were doing 3D. And those were Electronic Arts and Radical Entertainment. Those are the two, the two companies at the time. So I applied to both. And EA, being the larger company, took its time getting back to me. But uh, 
Radical sent me a fax like an hour after I sent my resume and said, hey, come down for an interview. So I ended up working at Radical for 15 years because of that. So, so the, the, long, the short answer is no, I, I didn't have a plan, uh, you know, video games versus movies. I just wanted to make pictures. So and here you are plan. today making yeah. games and making pictures. And, and let's talk a little bit about Hothead because that's going to be kind of the main topic of our conversation today is Hothead is a self or a publishing company, a development studio, right? Uh, you've made many of your own games and now you're looking into the idea of co-development and helping others out there that may either just be publishers or need help, right? Maybe you can explain it a little better than I can on what the idea of co-development is. Well, yeah, like, so start with self-publishing. What that means is for a lot of its history, Hothead has been building our own games with our own IP, you know, um, our own creations, basically. And we, so we take on the development cost to do that. And then we also have a marketing department. We take on the marketing costs, which in mobile games, which is most of what we've done, um, is a very large portion, if not more than 50% of the cost of getting a game to, quote, scale um, is marketing. And it's a, it's a real science and art. And, um, you know, over time, it's become riskier and riskier and more and more expensive um, due to all sorts of factors, which I won't go into. But um, we still do that. We still self-publish and self-develop our own games. Um, and we co-publish as well, which is different than co-development. But what we decided about a year ago was to diversify our business model, not, not, not say goodbye to self-publishing, but add something. And that something was, you know, there's different names for it, work for hire, co-development, basically help other companies build their games is, is what work for hire or co-development is. And it, and it ranges from, you know, having one engineer, you know, transplanted into a team to help optimize something on the Android, you know, device all the way to, you know, if a, if a company just has IP that they're licensing, intellectual property, they don't have any development capacity, we could just, we could be building the whole game from start to finish with our entire crew of people, you know, designers, artists, programmers, everybody. So, and, and, every, and, and there's projects in between too, where we're, we're taking on a feature set of a, of a larger game, or maybe we're running the live ops of a game that's been out there for a couple of years and the company wants to move, our client company wants to move their people to some other project, but they still want the game to run. So there's all, all these different ways you can help out with development, like co-development. And we're, we're doing all of those things. We're, we're, it's very interesting. We're, we're a whole range of different kinds of projects with different clients, different game genres, different types of intellectual property. It's, it's very, um, it's mind expanding, actually. It's, it's, one of the side benefits for our employees is now they're getting to do all these different things, whereas before it was like just our own games, which is very sort of focused, right? That aspect will make it a tough sell, for lack of better words, right? I, I was listening to the Destructors of Fun podcast you you did, and, and you talked about the example, I think, being sports games and FPSs, right? How sounded like you're kind of starting to maybe shy away from that from from your own from maybe the hothead perspective because it's a saturated market it's hard to break into it at this point right but when you're going to these other maybe smaller indie companies right that need help and with development right like you may not have all the expertise across the board or do they pretty much do the expertise scale from genre to genre i could talk about that for hours that's a very open-ended question um let me think. Some, some aspects of that are some of our clients are very particular about our track record. So they will only talk to us about 
shooters. Like they have full confidence that, you know, if they have a shooter, they want built, we can do it. Please give us a pitch, you know, please, let's get going. But if we talk to them about, uh, you know, I don't know, like a match three game, let's say, we, we haven't released many match three games and that's a very competitive, crowded genre on mobile. They, they won't talk to us about it, right? They'll say, no, no, you don't have any experience successfully launching a match three game, so we don't want you to build our match three game. So some, some clients are like that. Other clients are like, oh, you're a hothead. You've been around 16 years. You know mobile. You've done a whole bunch of things. We care about that. We care about that variety of experience. And so we don't mind that you've never made you know, a match three game. This is not a real example, by the way. But you know, gotcha. and so please make our match three game based on you know, some famous IP. You know? Uh, and, and, and they're fine, right? Um, other, other comp so that's one aspect of your question. Another aspect is like, what are our, what's our strategy? You know, like what are, what's our intention and, and passion? Because no matter what we do, we have to be somewhat passionate about the project. You know, our culture is very much employee centric, right? We care about the happiness of our employees, right? And, you know, there's the foosballs and the, the snack tables and the flex hours and the remote work and all that. And, and, you know, we have all that stuff. Uh, but really what people care about is what they're working on and are they passionate about it? And do they like the people they're working with and are they learning from the people they're working with? Even though theoretically I'm the COO, I can't just tell people you are going to work on, you know, this, we're, we're diversifying. We're going to now be working on spreadsheet applications, no more games. So I want you to work on the spreadsheet application. You know, I'll, I'll just have a revolt on my hands. So we have to be a bit selective. That's a, that's a dumb example. That's not a real example either. I gotcha. But, you know, like, if, so if someone is really into sports, you know, we still do sports games and maybe we get approached to other people's sports games as well. Uh, well, for sure, they're a great candidate. But if they don't want to work on a non-sports game, I'm not going to put them on a non-sports game, right? So, so we have to be a little selective. We don't, we don't just claim we can do every game type under the sun. I mean, the savvy clients also... Uh, they, 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 that's a red flag. If, if, if they ask us, so what, what, what ki kinds of games are you good at building? And we say, oh, everything, we can do everything. I mean, yeah, that doesn't sound very, very good to some people. So we have to be honest about what we're good at and what we're not good at. You know? Yeah. I have to imagine as an employee, it's for the most part, fantastic, right? Cause like you said, you have baseball games, you have shooter games, right? And maybe I like, we hear this about FIFA and Madden every year, like, oh, it's the same game released every year. And the employee morale is probably not that high because it's the same game every year. This, you give the opportunity to give your employees the creative freedom to work, well, not freedom, but to work on different types of projects, right? So maybe they have a third person shooter, like you said, a match three as well, right? Like, I, I don't know, right? So, but like, it's not the hardest thing in the world to create a match three game to start building it out and scale. It maybe becomes a little more difficult. But if, if the client trusts you because of your track record and what you've done in the past, right, they might give you the opportunity and trust you with that. So I feel like as an employee, it probably gives you that more freedom where you can like, all right, I'm going to work on projects that I love rather than the same IP over and over and over again. Yeah, like we definitely can can give that variety to our employees, which is a, a real plus, I think, for them. But I just want to interject one thing. So let's not put down people who make match three games. That is a very competitive genre. And although it looks very simple, you know, in terms of building it, it is a very complex endeavor. And there's a reason why only certain match three games are successful and make the billion dollars and many, many, many fail. It's much harder than it looks. And that goes for any genre of games pretty well. Like, one thing that's happened over you know last ten years in mobile free to play in particular is well any kind of even console development 
is specialization. Like it's, there's a lot of barriers to entry to cracking into a genre that you haven't done before, because there's so much knowledge that's kind of top secret. That's not talked about, about how you, how you scale, as you say, how you scale one of those games. Sure. You can build something that looks like a match three game, no problem, but are you going to have it make a billion dollars, you know, easily? No. Right. So. Yeah, and yeah, no, uh, I've been actually trying to find a new match three game. I've downloaded about five in the past two weeks because I'm sick of taking my wife's phone to admit I play Homescapes. And it's just like none of them really feel great. Homescapes is a very polished game. So no, no disrespect to any, uh, match three game, but I'm curious, you know, you with your background, right? I mean, Capcom, great company, Radical, you, you, on our pre call, we talked about that you worked on Prototype, which is a game I, when I was little, I used to, Never had a PlayStation, but I, I always love to look at it. And I know the first one was multi-platform. All this experience in different gaming genres, when you start looking at co-development, does it give you a edge? Does it give you an idea? I mean, I feel like that's a silly question to ask because it just is. But like, do you think you take all the historical background and it helps you kind of expand for this co-development initiative that you're starting? Absolutely. Um, we, we can expand our reach into genres that maybe Hothead hasn't done as a company yet but that many of us who are senior in the company have done at previous companies. And we can build a strong case to land a project that um, maybe of a type of game that you maybe haven't seen Hothead build. But if you looked at the backgrounds of all the people who work at Hothead, you could see, oh, that makes total sense, right? So, you know, that's one aspect of having a variety of experience. The other aspect is something I'm really um, a fan of is, is cross-pollination. You know, when you talk about innovation, one of the things, I'm a student of innovation, like how I love to innovate. And I've thought long and hard over my career about, well, what are the, what are the precursors or the conditions required for innovation to happen? One of them, I believe, is cross-pollination, which is basically the idea of taking concepts and ideas and learnings from one field and bringing it into a new field. And that can be anything from, you know, bringing knowledge from you know rocket science literally into video games and you know somehow that creates an innovative game mechanic that's a silly example or it could be you know bringing a, a mechanic from say an open world game that's been done on console and bringing it into the mobile space in a way that's never been done before on a mobile game so that's a much more realistic example for example so if you have a wide experience as many of us do in in games across platforms and histories and generations and companies it can really add innovation to a, a project that you're that a client's considering doing with you um and and i think they're really at the end of the day they're paying you to make fun and fun often it comes with new ideas and differentiation over what's out there because people find new stuff fun and, and delightful and they they can't get that particular itch scratched anywhere else you know like i don't know a game like among us comes out right and it, it kind of like it's different than anything well i mean it's probably inspired by certain things but and it becomes the rage well why because you can only get that itch scratched with that game right and so clients and customers players are looking for that so where it comes from in part it comes from taking ideas from different fields and mixing them together in different ways it's a fascinating concept because it's ex it's exciting right i mean if you look at games like fortnite like you said among us these were almost i know fortnite wasn't first but like pillars of a new genre right i mean they took a classic genre and made such a different 
change to it that it made it its own and then it has its own imitators and you sit here thinking like all right well what new thing can i create i'm not going to create a brand new match three game right because those already exist i'm not going to create an fps because those exist but what can i take from elements from different genres to create something fun for people and you know instead of creating clones of games that are out there like how can you truly innovate and like those that's how you're going to get to be that unicorn that billion dollar studios when you create this idea that just people love like among us is a great example like you mentioned it's just it took something that no one's really done in gaming before and, and made it popular and it's just like i think i love your idea of cross-pollination especially if your clients and your customers trust you right because then you could take this, this pool of different talent different resources different specialties and start whiteboarding or spitballing some ideas out there to see what's going to work and what's not going to work. That's it's part of our pitch as a work for hire developer is we are kind of we're students of the game industry we call ourselves in terms of game mechanics like we know what's out there. Um, we've done a lot of it ourselves and then we know how to mix it together in a sort of strange brew of new new stuff that might actually be be fun for people and different. And then we also know how to test it. We also know um, how to kill our own darlings, kill our own babies. Like um, since, I mean, I can't tell you how many games I've killed in my career. Like I've killed a lot of games that never saw the light of day. You, your, your listeners might be, you know, surprised. Like nine out of 10 easily of the projects we've started across my career, we've killed. And they've never hit, uh, and no consumer's ever seen them. So part of innovation is also trying a lot of stuff and seeing what, sticks at the wall and testing it with sample players because trusting your own instincts is only part of the equation. Like testing it with real players is another part of it. So, and many ideas that you, you think are great don't pass muster with real unbiased, you know, players out there. Um, so yeah, finding innovative game mechanics that are fun is, is, yeah, it's, it's, it's not just cross-pollination. It's also testing and, and and trying lots of ideas. So I want to I want to keep on this topic, but but this is where I want to kind of take a pause and ask you some some speed questions here, just to kind of change the pace up and, and maybe give us some some social media clips here. So just <laughs> the first thing that comes to mind, you don't have to put much thought into it. Good to go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Last vacation you took? Uh, went to Gibson's, which is a little town in the Sunshine Coast, north of Vancouver and stayed on the beach in an Airbnb, just did a lot of watercolor painting, which is my hobby. Nice. Well, I'm going to ask you what your last book you read was, but maybe if you're not a reader and your artistic outlet is painting, what was the last thing you either read or painted? Uh, The last thing I painted was a picture of somebody's weird shack. Uh, There's this place called Finn Slough in south of Vancouver, right on the Fraser River. And it's a bunch of people who live on these houses on stilts and they're not really supposed to be there. It's this little community and you can get like peekaboo views of it from this little road. And I took some photos one day in the summer and they're just wild. They look like they're, they belong in the deep South in Louisiana in the Bayou or something. And it's, it doesn't look awesome. like Vancouver at all. Anyway, I did a painting in one of, one of these houses. It's crazy. This guy had, give me an example. He had this, uh, this porch and the cover for the porch was a boat turned upside down. And then his fence, in front of his porch to stop people from falling into the water was a whole bunch of outboard motors, these derelict old outboard motors that he stuck up like the posts of his fence. Awesome. It's crazy. Very cool. What did you eat for breakfast? I had some berries, a coffee, uh, an orange, some almonds. 
You know, I, I went with my wife to Seattle last summer and we were walking through some park and berries were just growing on the on the side of the park. I'm just like, this is an amazing place to live. I live on the East Coast. We don't really get this stuff. Like now I'm now I have blackberry bushes in my backyard and we'll see if anything comes from them. They'll take over your entire house. I bought the non invasive species one. Oh, I, nice. I paid very much close attention to that. Good. Did you what was the last game you played? Ooh. Um Genshin Impact. Okay. Um, I'm kind of somewhat addicted to it. Um, also, this is not really a video game, but I'm very addicted to Spelling Bee, uh, which is a New York Times, I would subscribe oh, yes. to the New York Times puzzle collection. Every night really. we play that. And Spelling Bee is, it's, I'm an addict. I, I'll, do, I'll, I'll wake up at three in the morning, like they released them at 12 midnight, and I'll finish it. I'll get genius, and then I'll go back to sleep. I'm, I'm that addicted. It's terrible. We we play it every night. That and the the smaller crossword and this yeah. new connections game. I don't know if you tried the connections one yet. Yeah, yeah, I, I played all those. They're not as good. The best one is spelling bee. I've also emailed the New York Times. If you're listening, anyone the New York Times, the user interface of your app is horrendous. Every time I finish it, I have to press back about 15 times to get back to the home screen, and you guys keep ignoring me. Last I'm question. I'm pissed off that they 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 don't they disallow words that are real words. It bothers me. I'm yeah. thinking of writing with a list. Anyway, last question: If you're going to go to the bar, what's your cocktail you're going to order? Uh, well, I like craft beer, but that doesn't count. Um, you can go. What, what's your I, beer I like local. I I I usually try to go with local North Shore. That's North Vancouver, which is where I live. Beers, uh, very very local. Like has to be within like half a k, half a kilometer okay. of where I live. So that's what I'll, I'm not really a cocktail guy. All right. All right. So back to our normal schedule program here. I think a big thing that's come out recently with some of the maybe Microsoft leaks, I forgot where they came out, was that cancellation of games. And people were appalled that games were canceled. And it was like, oh, my God, how can they spend so much money? And here you are, and other people have said it, that cancellation of games is very normal. Like, people should not overreact. But but. Why is it happening so often? What I mean, what are the main reasons this happens at late stages of games that it might be canceled? Well, yeah, that's a different question. I was talking about canceling games before they even see the light of day. Um, I think what you're talking about is games that have been running for a while. There's a big community base around. No, no, them. no. Sorry, I meant in development games. Like... Oh, in development. Oh, okay, okay. So why? Um, well, in free to play, uh, best practices are that. You're testing, you're always testing. You're testing in front of real users as early as possible. And it could be friends and family, it could be the company, you know, it could be uh, Playtest Cloud, which is a service that lets you put games out even pre-beta and, and get real players to play them and capture videos and talk about what they're learning and what, they're, what they don't like, you know, while they're playing. And then there's, you know, closed betas and there's open betas you can do on the Google platform. And you can, you can even do, um, you know, like, some sample marketing, some user acquisition marketing to get enough numbers playing this beta that that your the data you're gathering is statistically relevant. So you're looking for retention KPIs, you know, D0, D7, the, the usual terms you've heard of, and you're looking for mon even monetization. You can have a little bit of monetization in in these early games. We call them 0.3s uh, in our, that's just a hothead term as opposed to a 0.1, which is just like super, it's like, just the, the core mechanic. A 0 0.3 has a bit of a metagame. It has a bit of monetization. It has, it has some maybe 
seven days of gameplay so we can measure, you know, D3 retention and D1 retention. Anyway, why am I rambling? I'm rambling because you put games out at that stage and they maybe have seen the light of day if people are, are, are smart and they're looking. And the, the KPIs, the key performance indicators do not measure up. Like, you know, you can project that you can't get, if you don't get, say, a D0 of uh, 40%, you get people coming back the next day at a 40% rate versus someone who cracked it open and tried it. You don't have a product because engagement declines as this player ages, obviously. And unless you can get like, say a D30 of say 10%, that's kind of a rule of thumb, let's say, you're, you're, the game is not a business, it won't make money. So you can find these stats out pretty early without much, without an extensive amount of development, you know, months as opposed to years. And if you don't have a good, good liftoff on those early KPIs, you, you kill the game because you're never going to make a good business out of it. No matter how fun you think it is or how much in love the team is with it, you just have to kill the game because it's just a waste of money to continue developing it. So that's, that's it, often the reason. Is there, I mean, we, we've seen, how do we word, put this nicely, right? Some games come out this year that have not been so favorable. Uh, is there a point of no return, you know, where, where companies are going to be like, you know what, we just need to release it. It's just going to like cut your losses. Uh, well, are you talking about console games or, or free to play mobile games? I guess, well, a lot of free to play mobile games come out. It's hard to, hard to say that. Right. But I mean, even some AAA console games, right. I mean, like, right. So the console games are a different beast, right? So in that it's a premium model where you pay your 60 bucks, your 70 bucks, you know, maybe it's 30 bucks, maybe it's discounted, but you're paying upfront costs. Maybe there's DLC, maybe there's a live operations aspect to it, but mostly you make your money up front and then you've got the player. So there's still, you know, if you've got, you know, the sunk cost fallacy, right? Like you've spent, I don't know, $30 million making the game. There's still the, the hope that maybe it'll go out there and by just by pulling the wool over people's eyes, which is really hard to do now with the internet and social media, but you know, the hope is maybe you can get enough people to buy it early on that you'll make back some of your money, right? It's a tough proposition though, because you've got to market it, which is throwing more good money after bad if, if the game's bad. Some people think if they have a license, the license will pull them through, even though the game's bad. You know, that, that used to be the really prevalent back like 20 years ago. Now consumers have gotten really wise to that, right? To the point where they'll, oh, it's got a license. It's probably terrible right off the bat, even if it's good, it might be might be behind the starting line. Um, I don't know. It's, it's, it's just hope, you know, I think on the part of the people who've invested in the game, that's why bad games get put out. It's just hope. Bill, uh, going back a tiny bit, you, you talked about kind of these new innovations. How, how do you create cross-pollination and stuff like that? How do you, Tim, you know, in the world of technology that's changing very quickly uh, with things, even with AI and tools like that, how do you stay up to date on kind of what's the latest and greatest news out there? I don't actually try that hard, believe it or not, because I've been around long enough that I've seen the hype cycle. You know, there's this concept of the hype cycle happens so many times with new technologies, even with AI. I, I stick to the fundamentals, I guess, right? Like a lot of it's noise. The fundamentals are human creativity is going to come from humans. There's always a new paintbrush being invented. Like I'm a painter, right? So I consider AI to be a paintbrush. It's another tool, just like uh, 3D is a paintbrush or, um, I don't know, uh, machine learning is a paintbrush. Uh, 
different, slightly different than, than generative AI, or uh, you know, the concept of I don't know uh, scanning, three uh, D body scanning, or motion capture. These are all these are all you know tools that were hyped back in the day when they first came in, and they were going to be the differentiator of a given product. You know, and you know, streaming, streaming gaming, where you're playing a AAA game on your phone is is without a, a PS6. You know, is 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 the dream. Right? There's there's a ton of different technologies that have come over the last thirty years in my experience in video games, and they all some of them stick, some of them don't. Some of them add to the the picture, but the fundamentals still matter. Human creativity, a group of people working together in a harmonious way. Um, with obstacles removed from them doing their best work in a multidisciplinary way. These things are the same as they were, you know, 30 years ago in terms of contributing to the success of a game. And so the skills around setting up that kind of situation are timeless. They still matter. They're fundamental. Whether you're using AI to do something or not is kind of, eh, it's like a, 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 a thing that, I mean, AI could accelerate certain phases of, of development. I mean, it does, and um, that's interesting, but it's just makes the economics of a certain part of your development process different. And you get to spend maybe money that you would have had to spend in that area in some different area and beef that up. That's, that's the impact AI might have on, on games as far as I'm concerned. Maybe I'm a Luddite, I don't know. Well, it sounds like, I mean, I think you're not wrong, right? I mean, you're, you're talking about it all still comes down to the original foundation and principles of what you're going to do. And I, it says something about being in office and being in a, a room, a conference room together and just spitballing ideas again, right? What's, what are we going to do? How are we going to build it? Right? I can't go to chat GPT and say, what's going to be the next hot game, right? Like right. that doesn't exist. And, and yeah, maybe when you have that group of people that come up with this idea, you can start using AI or other new tools that are available to help you kind of generate that stuff, but it's not going to help you create that foundation that you need, that, that human element to actually build something that's fun. Right. I'll, I'll give you another example. The, the concept of game pillars. We use, when we kick off a project, we are very, very focused on what are the pillars of this experience, which are kind of like, what are the three or four, no more than that, emotional experience aspects that we expect the player to get from, from the end product? And how are they different than what they can get out there already in the market? I'll give you an old example. We did a game called Hulk Ultimate Destruction. You know, way back in 2005. And it was the first game, I think, that really delivered on the feeling of being the Hulk. You know, this is before the Marvel Creative Universe and all that. Um, and our pillars were, you know, unstoppable movement. He was, he was, nothing was going to stop him in an open world setting. He was going to run up any building. He was going to jump over anything. Nothing was going to stop him. He could smash or anything. Smash anything was, was, was another one where, you know, everything was destructible, right? Another one was epic boss battles, you know, like we weren't, we we're going to have boss battles, but he was going to be fighting 40 foot tall giant robots, not other dudes his size, right? And we even had weaponize anything, you know, which, which was the concept of he could pick up a bus and surf on it, flatten it and surf on it. He could pick up a car and rip it in two and make steel boxing gloves, you know. So any, any object in the world, you could do that. So we had those kinds of principles. Now, we came up with those things month one of an 18 month project, not month 18. 
And then we built the game around those principles. And then we marketed the game around those principles. And then the reviewers were parroting back what our marketing principles were, which was our pillars. And then the players were talking about this and they were having fun. Now, that recipe for fun that I just mentioned was not by accident. We didn't just stumble on it. We designed it by thinking about game pillars up front. That's an example of a fundamental principle in game building that still matters 30 years later, whether you have AI, generative AI involved or not. And if you don't get those things right, it doesn't matter if you have generative AI, you're still going to make a game that sucks, right? I, so, I love that. I, I think, A, do you still do that to this day? Like when, you, when you're playing a new game, are the pillars defined up front? Absolutely. And we do it for our clients too. We, we actually force our clients to think about it. Like we, were, we just had a, a client meeting the other day about a game we're working on, you know, which is early on. And we force them to think about the pillars and, and, and get them engaged. And they, they debated, they started to debate us, which is healthy and good. And we, we refine the pillars and, and now we're all, we're all on the same page. Right. And the other aspect about pillars, I'm, as you can tell, I'm a real fan of them is it, is it helps the team and the client be aligned. You're all rowing in the same direction. So eventually you're going to get to some destination as opposed to, being conflicted across the team and the client about what you're building all the way through the whole process. You're going to end up with mush, like gray goo, if, if you don't have these, these guiding light posts. Anyway, let's... I feel it's very similar to core values for a company, except I feel like core values are like every few years, your company reevaluates the core values. So how do you build upon something that's just thrown out there right now, whereas you're setting this up right from the front and i think it just helps you build a roadmap of how we do this and what's great about the story about the hulk is like when the reviewers started talking about that stuff you're like yes like we nailed it then right like i think back to games that when i was younger i had fun and i think back to like the original red faction i don't know if you played it but like you're pretty much able to shoot like a whole hole through the entire earth like everything was destructible and it was fun and like maybe the game itself the campaign may have been a mess and the whole thing but like it was fun and now you see these games that come out that just aren't fun and like i think back like what were they thinking and what were their pillars and it doesn't sound like they had a, a strategy there just like if we built something cool people will play it yeah in fact i that's a really good way of thinking if you're out there and you're a game player you're a gamer you think think about the games you played that you really like that you found fun and the ones that you didn't like you thought they were kind of generic or whatever they may have had high production values but they weren't fun and try to think about what were the pillars for these games like try to try to reverse engineer in your head what the designers had as pillars and you'll probably find that the ones you really like that are really fun that are you know get the highest ratings um, you can really clearly come up with what the pillars were and they're and they're different than a lot of things that are out there. Um, you, you'd be surprised. You, you could probably reverse engineer and, and um, it may, maybe it would make you a more discerning gamer. I don't know, like, um, oh, or a discerning game critic. I mean, I think, I feel like it's no different than a product manager when building out a product, right? When coming down with a user story, trying to create, why are we building this? What's the purpose of it? How are we doing it? So on. I think this principle transcends just gaming, right? Anytime you're designing any type of product, you can think about why am I designing this product? Who's the user and so on. It does. It, it definitely does that. But there's one extra element because gaming is a piece of entertainment. And that is the emotional aspect of these pillars. Like when we design pillars, we try to think about them, not just as like a feature, like a USP, unique selling point, which you would for a product. 
we think about it in terms of what emotion are we trying to elicit from the player? You know, what feeling is this feature supposed to give them? Because that's what entertainment's about, whether it's like excitement or tension or humor, you know, like I want them to laugh. I want them to just goof around and laugh, or I want them to be like scared out of their minds, you know, whatever it is, right? Um, uh, or shocked. We think about it on emotional terms because we are making entertainment at the end of the day. We're not just making a piece of software, you know. I love it. And I'm going to go back and there's a few games I'm playing right now that I'm already kind of confused on what the pillars could be. And I want to try and see if I could reverse engineer that. When we take a look at Hothead over the next 10 years, right? You said the company has been around for over 15 years now at this point. You have your own IPs. You're working on co-development. Where do you see the company going from here if Tim had it his way? Jeez. Um Loaded question, sorry. Loaded question. I mean, our ultimate goal, like there's this guy, Jim, Jim Collins, this business consultant guy, he has this concept of big, hairy, audacious goal, like BHAG. You know, like what is the goal on the horizon that you might never achieve, you know, 50 years from now? Like what, just, but just imagine it because maybe you'll get 10% of the way there and that'd be good. I mean, I think it's to, to make games that have like a cultural impact. They have, they, they entertain so many people across so many types of people. Uh, and they last for so many years that they 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 actually have a, a footprint on on popular culture, and they kind of stand the test of time. Those are the kind of games we want to make. Those are the kind of products we want to make, whether it's our own or whether it's for you know a client that has a, a you know a major IP. So so I would like to look back and say that we've we've done that right and 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 done it repeatedly. I think is is sort of one of our major goals. Is that, is that a decent answer? Is that, is yeah, that no, it's great. You know, I, I think, I mean, this BHAG almost sounds like pillars again, right? What, what are these goals? What are these things you want to be able to do? Like, I think it's a whole fascinating concept that this whole conversation, like, just kind of has me thinking on a different line of things. And I love how you want to expand kind of into code development. Do you see Hothead remain, like, having two parts? Or do you see it going by different names at some point if, if this code development really starts uh, getting legs of its own? We we definitely, I, I'd say it's too early to say if we're going to split apart or anything, but we, I mean, because we see value in, you know, lear, getting learnings from doing work for higher projects and feeding those learnings into our own projects and then vice versa, or having our own projects, which we're, you know, marketing as well as, as just developing and feeding that knowledge back for the benefit of our clients into our, into our client projects. Uh, I just see expansion. We're definitely going to be expanding. Like we, we have a high goals to expand on the work for hire front initially. And then because work for hire can be, you know, can be quite predictable and profitable, we can then reinvest some of that back into our own self-publishing, self-development uh, efforts. And we can expand on that front too. So they both, both business arms will kind of feed each other in kind of a, a nice way. So I, I, I see them being joined together for, for a long time, but yes, expanding is the plan. Like we want to, many of us have run quite large companies and quite large efforts and game teams and game productions. And we, we know we can do, uh, have a lot, we have a lot more capacity than, than what we're doing now. So we're, we're planning to, to use that capacity. Awesome. Great answer. And I have one last question and then I'll let you off the hot seat here is that in your expansive history here in gaming and VFX, is there one moment that stands out as your aha moment or amazing moment that you always go back into your mind saying this was peak? 
Yeah, I, I, one comes to mind. Um, it was at the tail end of my time at Radical. Um, we were we were owned by Activision at the time, and um, we I'd spent three and a half years of my life working on this game called Prototype which um, was an original IP and it went through many twists and turns and corporate adventures while being built. But lo and behold, it, it actually came out and Activision published it. And I hadn't had a vacation in like four years. And my family and I, we had gone to, we went to Spain, to Mallorca in this little tiny town. And there was hardly any internet. And the game came out and I had no idea how it was doing. Like this is before, like, you know, there wasn't, mobile wasn't that a thing really and uh, i had no idea so i had to go to this german resort all-inclusive resort down the road and they had a little internet kiosk and you had to put in euros to keep the computer going just to find out how this how my friggin game was doing and uh lo and behold one, one of my buddies in, in the team sent me a screenshot on metacritic and uh it was it had a 92 percent average at the time and then they sent me a screenshot of uh, you know the local the game industry data stuff we subscribe to and it was number one in the world and uh, it was an original ip and it had no really very little marketing and i was that was the peak and i was sitting there in this german resort like at midnight you know my kids had gone to bed and i was like punching the euros in just reading reviews that was a highlight i don't know it's just because you spend four years of your life on something like that and it's it means a lot to get it out. I, I mean, I remember when I was younger seeing the prototype. I mean, I didn't play it, right? But the guy it looked like he morphed like it, like almost like Terminator, right? Like he, right. this guy could do. It was just such an awesome looking concept and a cool looking game. And that's an awesome story of, again, for people who weren't alive before the this mobile phone period where you could get news everywhere. Now you had to go find it. Yeah, you have to put in your euros. I mean, it's a good thing you didn't play it if you're a little because it was definitely rated M. So. I will, you know, with the, uh, I just got a new, I got the Galaxy Fold phone and I'm trying to download emulators on it. So maybe I could see if I could find a, a way to whip it back up. There was yeah. a few games on the original PlayStation and PS2 I always wanted to play. I was just always an Xbox or, or Sega guy at the time. Yeah. Well, I mean, the game industry has to do a lot better at like um, keeping, preserving its history, right? There's a lot of, there's a movement about that, right? Like we, we're terrible at just, you never get to see the stuff that were classics of the time uh, are, are just unplayable now. And something needs to be done about that. Even owning it is going to become tough with everything being digital now, right? And once yep. a service like Game Pass, if it ever turns something off, you're your you SOL. Don't, yeah. You don't have a physical good and they decide, nope, you don't get to have it. Yeah. Well, Tim, I, I really enjoyed our conversation. I think it's giving me things that I'm going to do in my own life just to kind of start seeing how I can set up my goals and how I can accomplish it. And uh, before you go, is there anything you'd like to share about yourself or about Hothead or the code development effort? Well, I mean, shameless plug, right? Like we're, we're, we're definitely open for business for work for hire. Um, I think we, we, we add a lot of value because of our experience. We, we eat our own dog food. We've, we've, I mean, I like to say we've failed, more often than most people. So we know how, we know the mistakes not to make. I think that's the advantage of our experience. Um, we've also succeeded a few times, which is good too. So yeah, um, it's exciting. Uh, it's exciting for our employees, that's for sure, which is a very interesting side benefit that I didn't know would, would happen in advance uh, with this switch to work for hire. But um, yeah, it's been fun and we'll, we'll continue to be fun. I wish I could talk about stuff we're working on, but I can't, not for a little while, but uh, someday we will. That's for sure.
Well, we will be on the lookout for it, and we will have all of Tim's information as well as Hothead Games information on our Player Engage website. Tim, I, I again, really appreciate you coming out today. I hope you have a great rest of your day, and thanks again. Well, thank you very much, Greg. It was really fun. Thank you. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening to today's episode, and join us next week when we meet Lauren Wade from Calibri Games. Learn about Lauren's love for language, how she embraces change and career growth. It's going to be an episode you don't want to miss, so thanks again, and see you again next week.